Behold our God. Seated where? Seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Let us worship him. Let us praise him. Let's never forget who he is, where he is, the position that he holds. Amen? We began our service singing the hymn, Rejoice, the Lord is King. Your Lord and King adore. That's loaded, isn't it? Your Lord and King adore. Adoring Him, worshiping Him, praising Him includes the joyful surrender of our lives and obedience to Him. Uh, Tim Keller says that in 1970, a Sunday school teacher speaking to he and a few of his friends in their class one Sunday morning in the church basement used an illustration that changed his life forever. This teacher simply took a piece of paper and said, let's just say that the distance between the earth and the sun, which is 92 million miles, let's just say that the distance between the earth and the sun was reduced to the thickness of that sheet of paper. If that were the case, if that were the case, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. The diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. Then she said, the galaxy is just a speck of dust in the universe, and yet Jesus holds the whole universe together by the word of His power. Now is that the kind of being that you invite into your life to be your assistant? The answer, obviously, is no. Absolutely not. That is the being to whom we surrender. That is the one we worship and adore, and we surrender all to Him. And we say, you, you created, you spoke this all into existence. You hold it together by your will and your word. We are yours. And so we surrender to you. We come to you for direction, not merely for another opinion to consider. There's been a lot of talk over the years in books written about the cost of discipleship. Jesus talked a number of times about the cost of discipleship. Salvation is free in that we can do nothing to earn God's favor. Agreed? There's just nothing we can do. Scripture tells us that. Our salvation is based totally on His mercy and His grace. And yet, it costs us everything because we must come to Him in surrender. Roger read for us earlier from Romans chapter 11 how, how amazing God is, just who He is, how far and away above us God is. And Paul follows that up with that call then based on the fact that this God who is not just a God of majesty and power, but is also a God of mercy and grace. Because of that, come, present your body as a living sacrifice to Him. That's the only reasonable response that there can be. So any sacrifice from us on our part is merely seen as a gift to God. It is an act of, of service and gratitude. It's a privilege to give or to give up. 
there is the cost of discipleship to be considered. But there is also the cost of not being a disciple on the other side of that coin that also needs to be considered. The first 20 and one-half chapters of the Gospel of Matthew have made it clear that Jesus from Nazareth is in fact the Messiah, the Christ, the promised and expected one. The one that the entire Old Testament was pointing to. All the promises of God focused right in there on this one. He is in fact the King of kings and Lord of lords. His kingdom is eternal. But even in light of all of this truth revealed and demonstrated to us, not everyone responded to Jesus and His authority with joyful submission and surrender. Today we return to our series in Matthew's Gospel as we walk through these final chapters of this book. We pick up where we left off in the middle of Matthew chapter 21. We'll find here in this second half of this chapter, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they have a question. Jesus hears their question and then as we will see as the encounter unfolds, He turns to them with a number of questions for them to consider. But underlying this entire exchange, do not miss this, underlying this entire exchange of questions back and forth between these religious leaders and Jesus are the two questions, by whose authority does Jesus speak and act as He speaks and acts? And under whose authority do they live or do you and I live? Those are the two questions under it all. So as we come to this encounter and as recorded Matthew 21 for us, let's listen together, let's learn together, and let's reflect on our own lives and ministry today as we submit ourselves to God through His Word. Matthew chapter 21, we'll pick up in verse 23 this morning. And when He entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to Him as He was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I'll ask, also ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, Oh, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd. They all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the day after Jesus cleansed the temple, as we saw earlier in chapter 21. The triumphal entry leading to the temple. Jesus comes, He cleans the temple courts. He then takes time to teach and heal in those temple courts. He leaves the city with His disciples and He spends the night with friends out in, out in Bethany and He comes back down the Mount of Olives the next day and, and on this particular morning on His way into the city with His disciples, He goes to that fig tree, that nice leafy fig tree and curses it for not having fruit on it. We looked at that last time. And now he enters the temple courts. 
And as he comes back to the temple, returns to the temple, no doubt to teach there, to continue to heal and meet needs there and encounter people there, he finds the religious leaders are waiting for him, the chief priests, the elders of the people. They were waiting. They knew he'd be back. And as soon as he walks in with his disciples, they come up to him and they have a question, but it's really more of an accusation than a question. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you that authority? Now, what things are they referring to? Well, the clearing of the temple. <laughs> Emptying the temple courts of those that were selling and trading there. Kicking everybody out. Chasing them out. And then standing and teaching in that place and healing people in that place. By what authority are you doing all of that? Because those people that were selling and trading in the temple courts, they were there under our authority. We were okay with that. Who do you think you are? And this is the temple of God, yes, and we worship God here, but really this is our turf, thank you very much. And who are you to come and teach in here in our spot? This is our turf. Yes, we worship God here, but really, it's ours. So whose authority are you doing this by and who gave it to you? Because if it's just you and you're here on your own, you're going to have to answer to us. And if somebody out there gave you the authority to do that, they will answer to us. Because this is our place and we make the call here. We make the decisions. We make the choices. Well, if Jesus had turned to them and said, I am here by God's authority. He gave it to me. He sent me. And I'm teaching and I'm doing all of these things in, in His name under His authority. They would not have believed Him. They would have just continued to reject Him. They'd already refused to believe John. They'd already rejected God's messenger, John. And so Jesus asks them this question, and He says, I'll answer you if you answer me, but here's my question. Let's think back to my friend John. Remember the baptizer that you all went out to see? His baptism, was it from heaven? Or did He just make that up? Was that just from man? Did He come in God's name and with God's authority? Or was He here in His own or someone else's authority? Now He's doing a few things with this multi-layered question. Jesus throws this at the religious leaders and says, let's talk about John and his ministry. And now they've they got a problem. First of all, he's doing this because if, if they did not recognize divine authority in the words and actions of John the Baptist, they're not going to recognize it in Jesus either. On top of that, John had pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. Now, if we give John credibility and say he was from God and he was right bang on, we're giving Jesus credibility. And we don't want to do that. And so it's like they're just saying, okay, we need a timeout here, like a commercial break, okay? We're just going to be over here and we've got to huddle this up and decide this. And they're discussing this back and forth and saying, what are we going to do? If we say God sent John, he's going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? Good question. But if we say John was just on his own, look, look at these crowds. They all think John was a prophet. We're in trouble here. 
And so they say, we don't know. They lie. They're using this as a smokescreen to delay things until they can get their hands on Jesus. But they refuse to answer. Because in answering with the truth, they would have placed credibility right at Jesus' feet and said, yes, you are who you claim to be. And they had no desire whatsoever to surrender any authority to Jesus. They had their position and they were going to defend it no matter what it took. Now, before we continue on with this exchange, this encounter they had with Jesus that day, let me just ask this question of me and of you. Is there any part of my life or your life or our ministry together where Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God, by His Spirit and His Word, is there any part of our lives, any area of our ministries in which He could speak and put His finger on something that would draw from us the reaction, who do you think you are to tell me what to do with this? You can have the other things I've given you, but this area is my turf. This is under my authority, and I don't remember surrendering that to you. Is there anything that he could speak on? Any area of our lives in which that would come? By what authority, Jesus, are you telling me what to do? I asked you for an opinion because I'm considering and weighing all my options. I didn't ask you for direction. This is, in fact, my turf. Wow. That's a good question, isn't it? These were the religious leaders, the people who were supposed to be shepherding the people of God in their walk with God, in their worship of God, in their surrender to God and His authority. And that was their response to the authority of Jesus. Who do you think you are? Jesus didn't just let it go with that unanswered question about John. This is days before Jesus would go to the cross. The time had come to continue the discussion. And so Jesus pushes back and he pushes further by asking them two questions. The first question is in verse 28 to 32. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and, the same, and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, well, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. 
The first question Jesus asked is, okay, who obeyed? He tells this story of the, the father with a vineyard and comes to his two sons. Son, go out and work in the field today. Absolutely not. I got plans. It's my first day off in a while. Forget it. But then later, he thinks about it, he changes his mind, and he goes out and works. Second son, go out and work in the field today. Oh, sure, Dad, I got it covered. And then he just sits on the couch and doesn't go out in the field and work. Which one obeyed? Simple question. The answer is obvious to us all, isn't it? We would have all got that test right. These were intelligent men standing around, educated men. They listened to the story. They could follow the logic, and they said they got the answer right. Who obeyed? The answer is clear. The first son. He originally said no, but then he changed his mind. The first son, he said no with his lips. But then after consideration, he had a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction. He repented and turned the other way and obeyed the Father and said yes with his life. The other son said yes with his lips. This will look good. You'll think I'm doing your thing. Everything's fine. And as soon as the father leaves the room, he says no with his life. Hmm. Jesus asked the question, which one did the will of the Father? He didn't say which one could say the word obedience. He didn't say which one said, I will obey you. He didn't say which one could define what obedience is. Which one could recite the word obey in four different languages. He said which one actually obeyed. Well, the first. The one who repented, changed his heart, his mind, and his direction, and actually obeyed. Jesus looked at the religious leaders and said, you're right. You're right. So now, look closer with me at your situation. You say, yes, God, we will serve you. As long as it comes with robes and positions and prestige and, and uh, possessions and authority and privilege and influence and all those kind of things, we'll say yes with our lips. But when it comes right down to obeying, that's for other people. That's for somebody else. And we will not obey. Jesus says, that's, that's you to these religious leaders. He says, look again at those people that you despise so intently and so, so vocally. And who are the ones that you vocally and so intensely despise the most? The tax collectors and the prostitutes. They're your favorite go-to when you need an example of what not to do. They are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. Why? Because originally they were saying no to God. But when they heard the message of John, it is time to repent, to turn your back on doing things your way, to surrender to God, come to Him for forgiveness, and walk with Him in obedience. They believed. They repented. They have now said yes with their lives. And even, Jesus says, even when you saw that, and you saw the fruit and the evidence of changed lives, you still refused to believe. 
you would not submit and surrender yourselves. Jesus says, you guys might be the chief priests and the elders, but you talk a good game, but you just don't follow through. I see it. God sees it. These people that are standing there with their mouths open listening to this exchange in the temple courts, they all see it. They all know it. And now you know it too. You rejected John. You're rejecting me. But really what you're doing is rejecting God. And your heart is on display. Wow. That is not how they saw this conversation going when they got up early to wait for Jesus to come into the temple court so they could pounce and confront him in front of everyone. That is not how they saw this unfolding. But Jesus turns this right back on them and shows them the reality of their situation. And he says, it's not those with external religious, yes, God, that are actually walking in obedience and fellowship with God. It's those who actually go out and do it. Wow. That makes me ask the question of myself, and, and, and I'll put it out there for you as well. Do I say, yes, Lord, on Sunday? I will do what you tell me. But then like that other son, I just sit on the couch all week and I won't go do it? I say yes with my lips, not with my life? If that's the case, repent. Turn around. If we're one of the other sons in that other camp who say no on Sunday, no, I don't, this is ridiculous. I, who does he think he is, Jesus, telling me what to do with my life? I urge you, go home. Open your Bible, get on your face before God and reconsider. And repent. And do what he calls you to do. Jesus turned their question around and said, who obeyed? Well, the one who actually obeyed, not just the one who talked about it. He follows through and he, he goes further and tells them a second story. Just when they're kind of reeling from that, he hits them with another one. And he talks about another farmer. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. And he put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit draw near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servant and beat one. They killed another and stoned another. So he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus hits them with this next story and he asks them another question. What is that master going to do with those tenants? 
He gave them everything. He gave them the land. He gave them the crops. He protected it and provided for it and did everything they needed. He let them have it for a while and said, but I need it to produce fruit. And when he came for fruit, they refused. So he sent messenger after messenger after messenger and they continued to laugh and reject and disobey and ignore them and mock them and kick them out. And they started beating them. They killed them. Finally, he sends his son and they kill him too. What have they got coming? That's the story, and that's the question. And Jesus is clearly here talking about Israel. How many times does God speak about His people as a vineyard? And how He comes looking for fruit. Which, I think, is another hint on how we're supposed to understand the fig tree. That event with the cursing the fig tree wasn't Jesus, as I said a couple of weeks ago, wasn't Jesus needing a Snickers bar, right? Like, like this hangry thing where he's just mad because there's no fruit and so I'm going to curse the tree. This was right between cleansing the temple which was not being used for the purposes it was intended and right before talking to these, these religious leaders and confronting them with their lives and their ministry and what they were doing and how, the, how wrong that was and there was no fruit there. And so Jesus is talking to them about this, this lack of fruit that was being given. And he's clearly referencing the prophets of God being set time after time after time. Have you read through the prophets? What is the message? Over and over and over, generation after generation after generation, they continue to refuse all the way up to and including the greatest prophet of them all, John the Baptist. Refusing and rejecting. And now God has sent his son. And what are they planning to do to Jesus? To kill him. I mean, he just lays the whole thing out right there in front of them. I know what you're doing. I know where this is going. And he puts it all there right in front of them. And he says, what will be the response of that owner? God. Absolute judgment. Those wretches will be put to a miserable death this will be removed from them and given to those that will actually provide the owner with the fruit for which it's intended. That's where this is going. And Jesus is really saying to them, not what do those, what do those tenants have in the story? What do they have coming? But he's looking at these religious leaders and saying, what do you have coming? This is the, the, act, the, the actual question being put out there. He says in verse 42, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him. I am talking about you, Jesus says to the chief priests and the elders of the people. This is all being taken away from you, and it will be given to others. It will be given to the Gentiles who will actually acknowledge me as God. That's why he cleansed the court of the Gentiles and made room for them to come back in for worship where they were intended to be. The, the prostitutes and the tax collectors that you so publicly despise, 
they're welcome and they are coming in ahead of you. Why? Because they will repent and acknowledge the truth and believe and obey. You are the tenants. And the master is coming. His son is right here before you. What, what are you going to do? In case we go home this morning thinking, well, these guys couldn't really have known what Jesus was talking about. Look at verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. <laughs> they followed along and they got the point. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They knew it was about them, but they still rejected him. They still wanted him dead. They were willing, they heard the way the story ends, but they were willing to kill him anyway. That's the depth of what was going on in their hearts. They still rejected him. They still wanted to kill him. They still planned on it. And it was going to happen. It was just days away. And once again, we find the shadow of the cross is hanging over this entire encounter. They knew judgment was coming for what they were about to do in rejecting Jesus. And they just didn't care. They had hearts of unbelief. Jesus pointed that out in verse 32 when he said, you saw the tax collectors and prostitutes hear the word of John and repent and believe. You saw the fruit of change transformed lives as they surrendered themselves to God and changed their ways and walked with Him and you still refused to believe. You claim to be the religious leaders, the spiritual leaders of the people, but you have hearts of unbelief. Not only that, they had hearts of fear. Twice they referenced the fact that they are afraid of the people. They're afraid of the people. They have fear of man. They have fear of people. They have fear of losing their power and position. But there's no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God that says, look at who He is. Look at what we've done. And we'll come to Him in humble repentance and plead for His mercy and grace. None of that. None of that. Hearts of, of fear, but of the wrong things. And hearts of pride. That's where this started, back in verse 23. Who do you think you are to come step on our toes, on our turf, and tell us what to do? Wow. That's what's going on. Heart of pride. We did not give you that authority. The day of Pentecost, Peter, a couple of months after this, will stand before thousands of people. He will look at them in the eye and say, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Acts 2.36 God made Him Lord and Christ, Messiah, you don't get a vote. You don't get a vote. And yet that's what they were counting on. So the question this morning is, by, by whose authority did Jesus speak and act then? By God's. Then by whose authority does Jesus speak and act now? 
by God's. By God's. Have you seen Jesus for who he truly is? King of kings, Lord of lords, son of God? Coming in in the authority of God as he speaks to and, and into our lives? The second question is, under whose authority were they living? They were living under their own, thank you very much, and they were not willing to turn that over. The question for us this morning is, under whose authority am I living and serving? Do I live a life of surrender and submission to God? Say, He is is Lord and I'm not. And so in joyful obedience and humble surrender, I just say, Lord, what do you want me to do today that will honor you and accomplish your purposes? What do you want me to do? And I'll do it. And it's not a cost of discipleship to me. It's an act of service and sacrifice and worship. It's the only reasonable response I can have to who you are and the mercy you've given me. Friends, Romans chapter 10 tells us if, this is a conditional sentence, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A lot of times the gospel gets preached halfway. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, you'll be saved. That's not the gospel. It's an incomplete gospel. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, you don't get to call me Lord and then not do what I say. That's the son who said, yes, dad, I'll go and then sat on the couch. That's not how this works. In Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, be my disciple, be my follower, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. And if you don't do that, you cannot be my disciple. See, there's a cost of discipleship, but you've got to turn that coin over. How many people just love taking your car to the mechanic? <laughs> All due respect to any mechanics in the, in the place. What do you do when you're pulling in? You're going, oh boy, where's this going to go and how much is this going to cost, right? And you wait and they do their assessment and then they come and they say, okay, time to talk. You do that walk, right? Everybody in the waiting room looks and your head hangs and you walk up and go, what's up? Well, we found the problem. Great. What's it going to take to fix it? It's going to take $500 to fix this. $500? You kidding me? To fix my car? No thank you. That cost is too high. I will keep my $500, please. Give me my keys. I'm going home. If you make that choice and that decision, the cost of getting this fixed is too high. And you just carry on as things are. It might not be today. Might not be tomorrow, but there is a day coming when the cost is going to be oh so much greater. And when the whole thing is lost ultimately, and when you think, oh, $500 doesn't really seem like a cost now, it seems like a privilege. (laughs) There are people who look at following Jesus and say, I don't know. You know, I I hear people talk about the Bible and I hear Christians talk about following Jesus and I just don't know. I mean, following Jesus means there's things I can't do. If 
following Jesus, he'll tell me there's things I, I can't do. I've got to give up. I'm not supposed to do that. I'm not supposed to do this. I've got to go out and give to the poor. I don't want to give to the poor. I want to give to me. I got my plans. I got to give sex outside of marriage. That's not something I want to do. Look at our culture. That's just, not, that's just not acceptable today. I don't want to do that. No, I don't want to do things his way. If following Jesus has a cost of discipleship that includes this, I'm not willing to give that up. You're asking the wrong question. Asking the wrong question. You need to spin it around. And say, Almighty God has made it possible for me to be mercy and grace alone driving this has made it possible for me to be forgiven and restored to Him and to joyfully walk as His. If we truly understand that, the question is not, what do I have to give up? The question is, what can I possibly do to honor you today? It's not that I'm giving something up and losing something. It's that I have the opportunity to surrender one more thing to you. One more thing to you. Discipleship has a cost. Not becoming His disciple has a much higher cost. Kent Edwards puts it this way. He says, Jesus is like a magnet. And it's like all people are these iron filings on a, spread out on a table. And Jesus is like a magnet that comes and set down right in the middle. He cannot be ignored. He cannot be avoided. There's only two responses. You are attracted to Him or you are repelled by Him. One of the two. One of the two. This morning, this is a great passage for us to reflect on as we examine our hearts as we come to communion today. Am I... Am I like one of those religious leaders, the, the, the chief priests and the, the elders of the people who, who talk a good game and outwardly say yes, but then I go and I live my life without living it in surrender to, to Christ? Have I truly surrendered and do I follow Him? Great question to ask as we examine our hearts, as we come to communion this morning, to remember what He's done and to honor Him for what He's done. It's a great passage to help us focus our hearts on the gospel. Who is it all about? It's about Jesus. And what did he say in Matthew 28 to the church? All authority has been given to me. Therefore, you obey what I'm going to tell you to do. And that includes telling others, teaching others to obey everything I've commanded. Go and be my disciples and make disciples. It's all a question of my authority, Jesus said. Friends, if you're here and you've never surrendered yourself, to the authority of Jesus, God's Son, our only hope, who came and sacrificed Himself that your rebellion against God might be wiped clean and that you might stand reconciled to God as His child, welcome in His presence. If you've never done that, oh, make today the day. Make today the day. And if you have, and you're a forgiven follower of Jesus, a child of God. I encourage your heart and mine with the reminder this morning that the heart of discipleship is the heart of surrender. The heart of surrender to Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, 
and the Lamb of God. Behold your God. Come, let us adore Him. But behold the Lamb who makes it all possible, who is the risen Lord, the reigning and returning King. Amen? Let's sing this song, Behold the Lamb, together as we prepare for our time at the communion table this morning.